Tonight we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, we'll continue our systematic study through the book of uh, 2 Samuel, where we learn so much about David and how the Lord dealt with David, how David grows in the faith, and this is a, a long context of suffering and distress that we're looking at here, and it's just so fitting for life that a, a, a big part of life is surviving suffering. It's learning to deal with distress. I think the distress is a given, and praise God. It, one of the amazing things about David is there is so much inspired material from the pen of David about suffering, uh, about faithfully enduring uh, the distresses of, of life, the darkness that often characterizes life here in this world. That Tonight it's in the narrative. Of course, it's all through the Psalms. And, and again, it's not by mistake that there are so many Psalms inspired that speak to the distresses of life, many of them written by David. Uh, he's a man who spent time in the valley of the shadow of death, uh, as it's translated in, in many of our translations. It's a dark place. It's a hard place. But even there, the Lord was with him. And in this place that we find him in 2 Samuel 18, probably the longest narrative in 2 Samuel is this, this narrative, this account of when his son Absalom rebels against him commits treason. Uh, it's a long, wicked story. And we've seen David flee from Jerusalem. It was a sad scene. It's like one of the trails of tears you find in the Bible where the faithful king and his men are forced to leave Jerusalem. And there's like this long line of depressed, sad, dejected, downhearted people on their way out. And Absalom and this group of rebels comes in. And where we pick it up here is there's been a battle between the experienced warriors that follow David and the traitors that were following Absalom. And, and the traitors have lost. Absalom's been killed. And David's about to find out. So that's where we find ourselves. We're, we're, essentially, we're at the cusp of kind of the climax of this story. And the climax teaches us a lot about overcoming distress in life. That's what we see in David's experience here. One of, the, one of the challenges of these narratives, as you read through your Bible, and particularly 2 Samuel, is thinking about, okay, why is this here? What, why did God inspire this? What is God trying to teach us from this? Something you want to be thinking about when you, when you go to... This is not merely the recounting of historical facts. There's a lot of historical facts in the life of David that are not recorded. Why this? Why so much attention given to this? And why these facts? That's crucial in our study of the Bible and thinking through, what does God want us to know? Why does he reveal this? And what is the import for our life? 2 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said... Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. 
the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why, why, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Essentially here, the narrative begins with essentially this euphoric desire to spread the good news of victory. And, and you have mentioned here, you're introduced to Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And notice that's, it, it's, it's included twice that he's the son of Zadok. That this is one of the guys who's been loyal to David during the rebellion of Absalom. Zadok is one of the priests. So one of these men who faithfully serve God, who's proven himself all through this debacle to be a friend and an ally of David. And this is his son, Ahimaaz. And, and Zadok and David have a personal relationship. So Ahimaaz is kind of like a friend of the family. And he wants to take the news to David that there's victory. Now here you see a good deal of insight in Joab in that Joab says in verse 20, no, not, this is not for you to carry. And notice the reason. It's not for you to carry this news because the king's son is dead. And Joab knew that this news is going to hit David in a distressing way, as we would understand and expect. So there's a reason why he's not going to send Ahimaaz. Maybe he knows some, maybe there's more here that, than, than we know about Ahimaaz and why he wants to do this, why he wants to go. But I think part of this is, Whenever there, a messenger came to David announcing to David that Saul had been killed, now that messenger in that case lied about it and, and said that he took Saul's life because Saul was suffering. But, but essentially what you had there was a messenger brought to David what he perceived to be good news and David killed him for it. Uh, again, David is a lion. And I think it very well could be Joab, in light of this bad news, I've seen people that go to David with bad news about people that he loves being killed in battle. You're not going this time. I think, I think that's reasonable. And then he sends the Cushite. Now notice the Cushite is unnamed. But essentially, in the ancient, people like Joab, who is the general of the king's army, they have around them people who are professional messengers. But in that day and time, a person would run and carry a message when it needed to be delivered. Cushite, by the way, is essentially, the Cush is ancient Ethiopia. Cushite is a term used in the ancient world for an African. By the way, Africans are known for their speed, so it makes sense that he's a messenger. But essentially, the unnamed African, this is a foreigner. This is a foreigner. Let the foreigner deliver this news, not Ahimaaz, the, the friend of the family. So essentially, Ahimaaz pushes him again. Now, let me go. Let me go. And, and then I, I think seemingly Joab go, gives in, thinking, well, the Cushite will get there first. But Ahimaaz goes a different way and actually is going to beat him. So pick it up in verse 24. Now, David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. 
The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. The king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. So when David sees his family friend coming, he assumes, oh, this is good news. This is good news. And, and part of kind of the irony of this account is this notion of good news. And what is good news? What is good news in a situation like this? Verse 28. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. So Ahimaaz brings this news of all is well. And, and look at how Ahimaaz explains what's taken place. The Lord your God has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. He interprets it and explains it in terms of this is what God has done. And this is good. God has delivered us. God has delivered you. But notice what David's concern is. What about the young man Absalom? What about the young man Absalom? Now, Ahimaaz knows the fate of Absalom. Joab told him. But what does Ahimaaz do? He demurs. He seemingly vacillates. He doesn't answer the question. And so David says, stand aside. Here, incidentally, in 2 Samuel, this is the last you hear about Ahimaaz. He, do he doesn't share the news. And why? Well, that's, it doesn't tell us why. I think you can have some good suspicions as to why. But he doesn't. He doesn't faithfully deliver what he knows to David. That's the job of a messenger. It's the last you hear of him in the historical account. I don't know how much you want to read into that, but it's, that's the case. All right, let's look at the Cushite's message in verse 31. And what you're going to see is the unnamed Cushite more faithfully delivers the truth. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, and notice the, the, the literary emphasis on Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, friend of the family, faithful ally, and the Cushite, the Cushite, the foreigner, the foreigner. Good news for my Lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil, be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So this is a, the, introduced in the context of victory. And you notice... The Cushite also recognizes this is good news, and it's good news because the Lord has delivered you, 
And these enemies that raise themselves up against you have been defeated by the faithful followers of the king. There's an emphasis on the Lord's work here in deliverance and the fact that that's good, but that's not what David's concerned about. David's concerned about Absalom. And then beginning in verse 33, into chapter 19, the focus shifts to the despair of David, which obviously one could understand. He's just received news that his beloved son is dead. This is a time for despair. This is a time for mourning. We understand that. But it's also more than that. And that's what the, the text is going to press us to in David's case. Look, look at the emphasis again on David's despair, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 18. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber of the gate and wept. We, from the human standpoint, understand this. We may not have ex experienced that depth of grief, but we understand this horrible loss has caused this depth of grief. As he, as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Every dad understands that sentiment. Willingly would give our place for the life of one of our children. Verse 19, the, the emphasis continues on David's despair. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now look at how the unfolding events are described here. The victory that day was turned into mourning. It was a victory for Israel. David is the true king. Absalom is a traitorous usurper. David's faithful men risked their lives so that he could be restored to the kingship. And it's a day of victory, but yet the king is grieving. And look at how that affects the people in verse 3. And this is starting to get at, at, at the impact of this passage. That obviously there's a place for grief. But for David, there needs to be more than that. And that's going to, I think, be the, the, the central point of what this passage is trying to get across. Because notice, notice how it affects the people, verse 3. And the people stole into the city that day. As people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. It's kind of like, essentially, you go from euphoria because of victory to acting like you've been defeated. They should have been coming into the city with like the gladiator soundtrack. Instead, they're coming in with, hello, darkness, my old friend. That's what it feels like. This does not feel like a victory. And the reason it doesn't feel like a victory is because of David's reaction, which again, from a human standpoint, we can understand. Here's what's important to recognize in David's case. David is a father, and from a father's perspective, we can understand the horrible grief he's dealing with. But it's complicated because David is more than a father. He's also the king. He's also the king. And he has a responsibility to the people. He has a responsibility to, to Israel. 
And mourning is okay, but keep in mind who his son is. His son is an enemy of the state. His son is a known traitor and a rebel. In fact, his son's depravity is just infamous. And David's people, who are the faithful people in Israel, who are following the true king, risk their life for him. And now Absalom is is dead, and David is in mourning. One of the things you see about David in this text is, one, is something you've seen all through 2 Samuel after his sin. He's been disengaged. And, and we could go through and, and I could show you the examples, but there's been a lot of depravity that's happened in David's life and in his family and under his rule. And you know what he's done about it? Nothing. Nothing. He has one son, Amnon, that violates one of David's other daughters, and what does David do? Well, he gets angry, but he does nothing. He's been disengaged, and the, the, the Scripture has highlighted how he's been disengaged. Rather than being the leader he should be, which, by the way, as king, it's his, he's essentially the supreme court in Israel. He's the supreme executive, and he is not carrying out his authority and his rule like he should have been. Then not only that, Absalom plots, and for months and months and months, Absalom plots how he can kill Amnon. How do you not know about this in your own household, David? One son is plotting to kill another, and you're just disengaged? Yeah, that's the problem. And so that happens. Absalom plots and kills, I'm sorry, Absalom plots and kills Amnon, and Absalom flees. Essentially, he lives in exile. What does David do about that? Nothing. Joab actually steps in, brings him back. Joab comes back to Jerusalem and is there, I believe, for two years. And David doesn't even meet with him. This dude is totally disengaged. One of the reasons he doesn't meet with him is because he knows Absalom is guilty of murder and he knows that his role as supreme executive is to deal with that. Now, who wants to take that on? So what does he do? Disengages. What does he do when the people here come back with the joy of victory on the battlefield. By the way, any battle is a horrible reality of loss, isn't it? But in this case, David's men have won, and what does he do when he comes back with victory? He disengages. He's disengaged. And as horrible as losing a son would have to be, which is just unimaginable, David knows that it's a result of his sin. David, in his case, something that we wouldn't know, but in his case, he knows what God has told him. Because of his sin, the sword would never depart from his house. Now, you talk about some deep despair and some serious reason to grieve. David's got it. Well, let me, let me give you some of Matthew Henry's explanations of some of the problems with David's grief here. Um, and, and, you know, you need to think about these. This is what Matthew Henry says. One of the problems with the way David's behaving here is he has such a fondness for those who hate him, namely Absalom, which Joab's going to point out in just a minute. Also, Matthew Henry says one of the problems here in this passage is David 
is quarreling with divine providence. And let me show you what I mean by that. If you go back to chapter 17 and verse 14, the narrator of 2 Samuel gives you an insight into what God is doing in all this depravity. 2 Samuel 17 and 14. And incidentally, this is what David had prayed for. God answers David's prayer, and look what it says. And this is 2 Samuel 17, 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Why? Because Absalom is a depraved traitor and a usurper. And it's God's plan to end his life. Well, let's see what Joab does. Joab, who's the, the, the captain of, of the king's army, pick it up in verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants. You have this day saved your life. Who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines? Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord... If you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So Joab comes with a really stronger brute. And, and one of the things about First and Second Samuel is Joab is an enigma. I want to study the First and Second Samuel more and try to figure Joab out. I think he's just a picture of depravity. He is presented in most cases in 1 and 2 Samuel essentially as a villain. But here he speaks with wisdom. Here he speaks with wisdom. And what he does is he reminds David of his duty. And he brings some clarity to David's thinking. And he uses some really strong language to do it. David is loudly grieving, which again from a human standpoint is understandable. But Joab says you've covered with shame the faces of all your servants. And notice his servants have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Notice in David's life there's more than just Absalom. He has other children. He has other wives, which incidentally all these pictures of depravity show you a problem with that. But David's family has been saved this day. Absalom would have killed him given the opportunity. But you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out, speak kindly. And essentially the idea is, if you don't do this, the, the people that are stealing in with shame, that should be victorious because we just saved you and your family and your legacy, if you don't do that, nobody's going to stay with you. One of the things you see here is a friend, Joab, 
who's courageous enough to go in and say what needs to be said. To call David to the responsibility he needs to carry out. And yes, we recognize grief is real, and this is going to be a scar David's going to bear for the rest of his life. But in this case, Joab is speaking in accord with God's plan. Because again, God has made it clear that he is going to defeat the counsel of Absalom's counselors, and he's going to bring harm upon Absalom. Now again, this is why it's not a one-to-one comparison with all of our sufferings. We don't know those things. But in this case, you do. Absalom is a villain and a traitor, and out to overthrow the king that God anointed and put in place. One of the things you see here is all these dark threads of depravity don't hinder the plans of God. That God is going to fulfill his plans despite these depraved stains, and they're everywhere. And again, one of the ways I believe God works in our life and particularly in the life of the grieving, is sometimes you need someone to come into you and encourage you, and spur you on. Particularly as a man. Men need other men around them to speak the truth to them because emotional distress is real, isn't it? And what you have in the Bible here is you have the picture of the worst conceivable emotional distress. I mean, the death of a, of a son is horrible enough. But here's the death of a son that essentially you're responsible for. And you know what else is horrible about this case? Whenever David's other son died, when his infant died, David was comforted. David was comforted, I will go to him. No such comfort with Absalom the villain. This is, the, this is a a picture of of just the worst imaginable distress a man could go through. But what happens? What happens? Well, look what happens in verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. I think that's what you see here. And I think this gets at the the heart of the point of this whole narrative of this victory and this good news being turned into mourning. David's response, Joab's rebuke, what happens? It brings David back to a place of service is what happens. David's back where he should be. You've had lots of examples of David being disengaged. And by the way, his disengagement and lack of fulfilling his responsibilities has led to some of this darkness. But now what do you see? You see him back in the gate. Incidentally, in that time and place, the gate was the place where leaders met. There's a lot of business that takes place in the gate. You read the book of Ruth. Whenever they they settle the matter of who's who's legally able to marry Ruth, this this is decided in the gate. This is the place where the leaders meet. This is where the elders of the tribes come together. And essentially, David being, in that case, the chief elder, the king, he's back where he should be. He's back doing what he should do. So what you see here is is after a long, distressing, dark, depraved chronicle of events that lead the king David into a terrible time of darkness and pain, you see him 
back carrying out the duty God called him to. And herein, I think, is the prime, primary lesson that we need to return to duty despite the stress. You need to do your duty despite the distress you face. And again, this is why I think the Scripture gives you the picture and the account of the worst possible distress imaginable. And yet, by God's grace, David comes through it, and after this long, horrible ordeal, he's back where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to be doing. And you see how it comes about. It's not by a primrose path. It's by a path of pain. This is just how God disciplines his servants. But again, the key thing is he's back to his duty. Despite the distress. The distress is a given. How do you carry out your duty despite the distress? Well, that's what you see here. You've got to go back to serving after you've endured severe pains. Part of life in this world are seasons of distress, and some of them last longer than others, and some of them cause more scars than others. You know, there's some scars in life that just don't ever heal, particularly the loss of a loved one, and that's just a scar you're going to bear the rest of your life. But you've got to get back to faithful service to the Lord, despite that kind of pain. That's what you see happen in David's life here. David had gone through terrible things, but now he's back to duty. And the reality is, in serving Jesus Christ, a lot of people, because of the distresses they face in this world, get derailed. They get derailed. They're faithfully serving, following the Lord, growing in the faith, and some terrible distress happens and it derails them. And they stay derailed. And what happens? They get bitter. I mean, the church, my church experience and church history is full of people who were faithfully serving. Something happened. And how did they respond to it? The distress and the sorrow is is recognizably understandable. But the bitter life that follows is not acceptable. So the distress is a given, but the question becomes, how will you respond to it? And that's why you have such a profound example here in David. To not allow these distresses to callous you to such an extent that you quit serving in the duty God's given you. You understand, as a Christian, you're responsible to the Lord. Our responsibility to Jesus Christ is the highest responsibility of our life. Yes, we have responsibilities to wife and family and children and church, but our greatest responsibility is to Jesus the Lord, to obey his commands, to follow him, to live for him. And we can't let the pains that you're gonna experience in life derail you from that. Again, my history is full of knowing pastors and pastors' wives who hate the church. That's part of the Christian experience, sadly, it shouldn't be. Usually in those cases, what they're hating is, a, is a, some kind of abomination or some kind of aberrant church or gospel or practice. But you see it over and over again in the lives of Christians. They're serving 
and then there's distress, and they're sidelined. Well, here in David's case, you see the example of one getting back in the gate. After a terrible trial, he's come back, the Lord has brought him back. You see it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is an unusual ministry. He's, God commands him not to marry because the responsibilities God had upon him would not allow for it. Very unusual. Very unusual. And you see Jeremiah go through some serious distresses and pains and questioning God. and That's part of the experience of being a sinner. You see it in Ezekiel, this other faithful prophet. God tells Ezekiel, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes. And he means his wife. What a horrible distress Ezekiel had to go through. But you know what? He kept preaching. And because of that, you have the book of Ezekiel in your Bible that reveals God. Jesus said, the way is hard that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. This is what it means to follow Jesus. The way is hard. And essentially, the disciples become seemingly convinced that in Jesus' preaching and teaching, it doesn't seem like a lot of people, in their case, a lot of, it doesn't seem like a lot of Jews are going to be saved. And there's this, one, there's this one case where Jesus is preaching and the disciples ask him, are, are there many that are going to be saved? And you know what his answer is? Strive to enter by the narrow gate. That's in Luke. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. The way is hard. Few there be that find it. Paul to the churches of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Here's a summary of Paul's preaching to churches. What does he say to Christians? Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, the tribulation is a given. How are you going to deal with it? How are you going to endure it? Are you going to continue in your service to God? That's what you see from David's example. Jonathan Edwards is a guy that you can learn a lot from. Edwards said, surely I'm a man born for strife. There's, there's Edwards' definition and understanding of the Christian ministry in his day and time. And here's a, here's a guy who's the most celebrated American preacher, really in all of our history, but at least in his generation. And what's he say about it? I'm a man born for strife. Charles Spurgeon, who we talked about this morning. Spurgeon's life is full of and characterized by suffering and endurance. I mean, how does this guy keep preaching? It's, a, it's just amazing. Now, he does die in his 50s. But kind of the, one of the last battles Spurgeon fought were against his, essentially, his own, what he thought were brothers, when liberalism was entering into the churches and ministries, when, when literally what you had in England, like you have today, is you had pastors that were unbelievers. And of course, Spurgeon decries that. And, and in, essentially, Spurgeon led his church to, to leave the Baptist Association of that time because it had been so filled with liberals. And Spurgeon of that battle with them said, this fight is killing me. This fight is killing me. You keep preaching. Charles Simeon is another one of these preachers. 
71 years old. He had been the pastor for 49 years of the same church and uh, just went through all kinds of crazy trials. I mean, just ridiculous things that would just, just blow your mind. And essentially, one of his friends asked him, how did, how did you endure all that? And here's one of the things he said. One of the amazing things about this guy, Charles Simeon, even though in his life he was kind of uh, remembered as like an angry man, he also was sweet. I don't, know how you, I don't know how you balance sweetness and anger, but evidently he had a, a measure of both, right? No, no man is a perfect man. But listen to what he said about his sufferings. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Well, there's a way to keep enduring and keep fulfilling the duty the Lord has put out before you. He's victor. He's the one we depend on. He's the one we find strength in. In fact, David, who is the suffering king writes many psalms about the suffering king who is to come. That the king, Jesus, would quote and use in an explanation of his own person, his own deity, and his own work. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is a Davidic psalm. So here you have a suffering king who's able to write truth about the suffering king who would be to come. And you understand that's who Jesus is when he comes to earth. This baby we sing about in Christmas comes as a suffering king, a suffering servant. Let's end with Isaiah 53 and verse 4, the suffering servant. Look at what this says. What do you do with your grief? The griefs of these distresses? Look at what Isaiah 53 says. And verse 4 says about the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Psalm 53 and verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's where your griefs go. He takes them away. Not in this life, but through his work in the eternal life to come, wherein will dwell righteousness. That's something to look forward to. He takes your griefs and your sorrows. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us are sinners. Every one of us has turned to his own way. We all live there and understand that and know that. But praise God, the Lord did something. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, all of his people. Jesus has borne our iniquity. Praise God. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray that we'd recognize that our victory and our overcoming is through you through Christ our Lord, the one who has overcome. 
the greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And Lord, we look to you to get us through the distresses that we face here in this fallen world. We recognize, Lord, all of us are sinners. All of us, like Isaiah, and like every other man who's ever lived other than Christ, all of us have gone astray. Lord, we thank you that you've laid on Jesus our iniquities. We praise you for that, Lord. Thank you that he bore our griefs, that we experience grief and pain in this life. But because of his work, he's made it so they will be taken away. They will be taken away. Thank you, Lord, for that. So God, help us to endure in the evil day. God, I pray for so many Christians, Lord, so many members of our church that aren't engaged. Whatever the reason, God, so many cases, the distresses of this painful life, that, God, they'd come back to faithful service to you. God, use us to go to those who aren't serving and who are derailed by pain, or maybe like David, gone through such a horrible time and trial that those emotions have overcome them. Help us to go to them and encourage them to get back in the gate, to get back to fulfilling their responsibilities before you. So God, use us in that way to build up the church and to encourage the faint-hearted and the struggling. And Lord, help us to have strength in you to do our duty in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing for his glory. This duty that we speak of follows faith in the gospel, that the gospel demands duty. Jesus has freely given himself on the cross for our sins, an atoning sacrifice that's accomplished eternal redemption. What good news that is. And the call to us is to turn from our sins and trust in him. So trust in him. Trust in him. And in our trials, trust in him for strength. And learn from the example of Joab and David and stay in service or get back to service for his glory.